Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, an infectious disease expert provides an update on the coronavirus and how COVID-19 is being treated. One of the things that the critical care physicians and the pulmonologists are learning is that the types of lung injuries that people have with severe COVID infections, um, they are, they are uh, somewhat unique. And a social worker talks about the difference between loneliness and isolation and how we can help ourselves and our loved ones. Social isolation is a state of complete or near complete lack of contact between an individual and society. Loneliness often includes depressed and anxious feelings about a lack of meaningful connection. All that plus the healing muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, on a special coronavirus-themed episode, a social worker discusses loneliness and isolation and how we can help ourselves and our loved ones. But first, an infectious disease expert provides an update on the coronavirus and how life might look in central New York six months from now. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Three months ago on HealthLink on Air, Dr. Stephen Thomas talked with us about the novel coronavirus and the first case of COVID-19 that was diagnosed in the United States in January. Now we're in the midst of a global pandemic that has infected almost a million, and has killed more than 53,000 Americans, including some two dozen right here in central New York. Dr. Thomas is with me again today via telephone. He's the Division Chief of Infectious Disease at Upstate, and he's been leading Upstate University Hospital's incident command response to the pandemic since the middle of March. Thank you for making time for HealthLink on Air, Dr. Thomas. Thank you very much for having me back. Well, first, let's talk about the disease COVID-19. What have you learned about this disease from the patients who've been treated here at Upstate? So I think the first thing that uh, we have learned is that how these patients uh, present can be um, a little bit different than what we initially thought. So initially, we thought that this was very much like a pneumonia, so people would have fever, a cough and shortness of breath. But, you know, what we've seen is that um, what that looks like has has broadened quite a bit. And so sometimes people don't have fever. Uh, sometimes people don't have cough. They don't have shortness of breath. They might have a sore throat or they might have um, generalized weakness or fatigue. Uh, they may have um, uh, muscle pain. Uh, sometimes, you know, you've seen they uh, in, in the lay press recently, uh, they may just have um, skin manifestations. So these things they call COVID toes or these sort of red, uh, painful um, nodules on, on uh, the feet. Uh, and then, and sometimes they've had even just loss of, of taste or, or smell. So I think the, the biggest thing that we've learned is that it can, uh, the disease can present in a number of different ways. I think the other thing that we've also learned is that, and it goes along with um, what I was just talking about regarding symptoms, is that it seems that a number of different organs uh, can be involved. Um, So it's not just the lungs, it can be uh, the kidney, it can be the liver, the the brain can certainly be involved. Uh, um, People can get a a substantial amount of um, blood clotting uh, going on in different vessels in the body. So, uh, so we're learning that this is uh, that this is a disease that impacts much more than just the respiratory system. So it's no longer really being considered a respiratory illness necessarily. Um, not just a respiratory illness. We still think that the that the respiratory tract is is still the predominant organ that's involved, uh, but uh, the disease does seem to involve uh, a multitude of other organs as well. Is this like anything, any other disease that you've seen before? Um, 
I mean, we certainly see, uh, you know, I can just speak from the infectious disease um, perspective. We, we do see diseases that um, can impact uh, uh, multiple organs at the same time. We do see diseases that it's not just the, the pathogens impact on a particular organ. So in this case, um, the viruses impact on the, you know, the lungs or the kidney or the liver or the brain, but that there, but all, but the, um, the person who gets infected, their immune response also can be detrimental uh, uh, to the patient. So we, we have, you know, we do see other diseases that, that kind of, um, that can cause this kind of problem for, for patients. But in, in, in terms of just the scope of the pandemic and the numbers and um, just the massive impact on a global scale that this uh, particular virus and disease has had that I have not seen I have not seen before. Are you able to predict how a patient is going to fare? Um, are there certain traits that a, that particular patients have who end up surviving this? And any way to predict? Well, certain people. I mean. Certain people definitely do worse than others, and so unfortunately, people who are older, um, they end up in the hospital more often. They end up in the intensive care unit. They end up, you know, on a ventilator, uh, and they end up um, dying at a much higher rate than than younger people. And it's very much when you look at some of the initial data that's coming out, which includes you know tens of thousands of patients. It's very much a incremental and stepwise increase in uh, fatality as it relates um, to age. Uh, people that have existing medical problems, um, certainly pre-existing lung disease or heart disease, obesity, uh, uh, diabetes, uh, these folks also have, um, uh, have an increased likelihood of not doing well if they are infected. But then there's also people who, you know, young healthy people who we've seen um, you know, anecdotally, but not infrequently, that they, um, you know, regular healthy young folks can also do quite poorly with, uh, with this disease as well. You mentioned about people losing the ability to smell and taste, and that just seems so odd. What, any idea what that's tied to or what's causing it? Um, well, there, it is, it is somewhat odd. Um, I'm sure the I'm sure the neurologists probably see this uh, um, more frequently than other types of physicians, but I, I certainly have not seen this uh, as frequently as it's being described for this disease. Um, you know, the reasons I think they are certainly looking into the reasons as to why this might be the case. You know, if you think about it, um, the way people get infected is they, uh, one of the ways that they can get infected is that they breathe in through their mouth or through their nose um, respiratory particles that could have, uh, and respiratory droplets that can have viral particles in it. And so if someone breathes, uh, breathes in virus and the virus sets up shop in the nose or in the nasal pharynx and it starts to replicate, it has a pretty straight shot um, uh, to the brain. And so uh, it's possible that areas that uh, uh, control our taste and our smell um, that either they're getting directly impacted by the virus or the immune response and the inflammatory response um, to infection uh, could, be causing, uh, could be causing this type of problem. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Stephen Thomas, the Chief of Infectious Disease at Upstate. Let's now talk about treatment. Without proven treatments, what does the care of hospitalized COVID-19 patients consist of? So the first thing that it consists of, which may not sound like treatment, but uh, um, but I want to mention it because it's so important, is the first is, you know, identifying somebody who may be um, that you may, that you have the suspicion they may have been infected because you have to get them into the right clinical care setting, and by that I mean you have to isolate them in, in a private room, um, and any of the healthcare workers or uh, people that are going to be in that room or around that room, they need to wear the proper uh, personal protective equipment. 
So that's the first thing. Um, this, the second is that it would depend upon the severity of, of the illness. So for some people, um, it's, uh, it's just sort of uh, supportive care. So if they're, if they're febrile and having fever, then you can help make them comfortable and try to reduce their fever. Uh, if they're having pain, you can help treat their pain, uh, make sure that they remain uh, uh, well hydrated, make sure that their nutritional needs are, are, are being met. Um, but for people that are, are, are sicker, and so the people that may be in the intensive care unit, um, these, sometimes these folks end up being put on, um, on ventilators, and so they need machines to breathe for them, either because um, they're getting too tired uh, from breathing or they're really not able to take the type, types of breaths that they need to act, you know, adequately exchange, um, uh, you know, get oxygen in, in, into, their, into their blood. And one of the things that the critical care physicians and the pulmonologists um, are learning is that the types of lung injuries that people have with severe COVID infections, um, they are, they are uh, somewhat unique. And I, I think, and you, you know, you'd have to talk to a critical care specialist to get, to get all the details, but they've been having to use um, sort of more innovative ways of ventilating, uh, of ventilating people um, just in terms of how they uh, you know, how long the inspiration is versus how long the expiration is. That's sort of just a general way to, uh, to describe it. And, and they actually, they flip the normal ratio. They kind of flip it on its head and they reverse that ratio. And they've been having a good experience with that. Another thing that they, that they sometimes need to do, and it seems to be um, having at least, um, you know, in an observational way or an anecdotal way is, uh, um, they call they do what they call proning. So typically, patients are on their backs when they're in bed, for example, and certainly when they're ventilated. Uh, proning is when you move the patient onto their stomach, um, and so uh, they're having to prone people, which is not um, uh, it's not uncommon, but it's not common. That's that's for sure, and it seems to have a good effect with with patients with severe respiratory illness related uh, to COVID. Uh, they also, um, you know, as I mentioned before, these um, observations of people getting blood clots, uh, they have started to, um, you know, they'll do tests to see how coagulable the blood is. And uh, if, uh, if um, the patients exceed a certain threshold in these tests, then they are anticoagulating uh, uh, patients. Um, and that refers to blood clotting, right? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, they want to prevent those blood clots, both the big clots and the small clots. So, you may have heard in the in the in the lay press, you know, this uh, um, Tony-nominated Broadway star who has unfortunately lost uh, lost a leg due to a large blood clot. Um, and this is something that the doctors that we have spoken to from Wuhan, China, where the outbreak started, uh, they were very clear about this that they were seeing um, a lot of people developing both small and large blood clots. And so they were recommending to anticoagulate people early, which is what our, what our docs are, uh, are doing. And then there's a lot of people um, who end up getting, uh, their kidneys end up uh, uh, having problems. And so, you know, and they think that this may be not only a direct effect of the virus on the kidney, um, but that uh, um, the kid, but that, alterations in the immune system and alterations in, in um, uh, the, uh, the hemodynamic status of the patient, so the blood flow and these sorts of things, uh, how those could be negatively impacting the kidney and people end up getting put on dialysis. So, uh, so these folks are very sick. They require intensive and broad-based um, support for um, uh, injuries to multiple, uh, uh, to multiple organs. We'll be right back with more from Dr. Stephen Thomas. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking about coronavirus with Dr. Stephen Thomas, the infectious disease chief at Upstate, who is leading the hospital's response to the pandemic. 
What can you tell us about the convalescent plasma project at Upstate? Yeah, that's a very exciting project. So the first thing that I would say is that the concept um, is this. So uh, you have somebody who they get infected with SARS-CoV-2, they develop a COVID illness, uh, and then they uh, thankfully recover. Um, the concept is that when they recover, their immune system has now uh, formulated uh, antibodies um, against the virus. And so we could then take the part of the blood where the antibodies are, which is the plasma, and we could give that to somebody else who is in the midst of fighting the virus and sort of give that patient's immune system a boost, give them, a, give them some help. Um, and uh, the way that, you know, theoretically what would happen is uh, instead of having to wait, instead of that patient having to wait for their body to produce antibodies, you give them a big bolus of antibodies, those antibodies bind the virus and they help the patient to recover. So we've had, um, it's been actually, you know, very nice to see in our community that um, lots and lots of people who have had COVID infections have raised their hands to be donors. Um, and so the Upstate Global Health and Translational Science Group under the direction of um, uh, Tim Endy, who's the principal investigator on the plasma project, um, they contact these people, they, they, they bring them in, they screen them, uh, they work with the Red Cross to get them scheduled to, do, to give a donation. They give a donation um, in Liverpool. The blood then goes to Rochester. In Rochester, all these different safety tests are done on the blood. And then when patients are identified who could benefit, uh, then we communicate with uh, the Red Cross and then Rochester. They release the plasma from Rochester to then be given, uh, given to the patients. Um, We've given convalescent plasma to more than five patients at Upstate so far. Um, and it's a little too early to tell you whether it seems to work or not, but I can say that at the least, it doesn't seem to be doing uh, any harm. And, you know, COVID is not, the first, is not the first infectious disease that we've treated in this, uh, in this manner. And so there is some scientific plausibility that it can, uh, that it can work. And so we're hoping that, um, you know, whomever, whomever could benefit is able to get the plasma and then we collect the information and we can pool it with other people's experience uh, and maybe get an answer uh, as to whether or not this should become a standard of, of treatment. I have a bunch more questions about antibodies because we've heard this in the news lately. This is something that the body's immune system produces, right? In, in the blood. So does everyone who gets sick develop these necessarily or only if you have a healthy immune system? Um, yeah, so that's a complicated question. So um, of the information that is available, uh, it would seem that the vast, vast majority of people who have a documented and confirmed COVID infection, uh, they do develop antibodies. Um, there's a different type, there's different phases of developing antibodies. So um, the the kind of early initial phase of antibody is called uh, what we call an IgM antibody. And then that'll peak first and then that starts to go away. And then around seven to 10 days, we'll start to develop our more permanent antibody, which is uh, called an IgG antibody. And that IgG antibody is what most of the tests that are on the market right now, um, what, they, what they test for. Now, the, the, the one issue is, and this is an issue related to testing, which I'm sure we'll probably talk about, um, we don't know if you can be infected by SARS-CoV-2 more than once. We don't know if you can be uh, develop COVID disease more than once. So um, this, these antibodies might not give you immunity? Uh, you know, it would, it would stand to reason that they would, but we just don't know that answer yet. And to tell somebody, if you have antibodies, you're protected, that would be premature and we really wouldn't have the data to support that uh, statement. Um, we do know that you know, the, the community acquired coronaviruses, so these are the 
human coronaviruses that cause, you know, anywhere between 20 and 30% of the flu, you know, the colds that we see in the fall and winter, um, we do know that we can be infected by them um, more than once. And so we do know that uh, you can become ill from those coronaviruses, uh, um, you know, season after season. Uh, now, whether SARS-CoV-1 or MERS-CoV, we really haven't seen that people have had multiple infections with, with those viruses. And so if, you know, if SARS-CoV-2 is more like SARS-CoV-1 than it is the community acquired coronaviruses, then it would stand to reason that if you get infected that you should have some level of immunity for some period of time. We really just, we really don't know that. And so there's a lot of experiments that are going on out there uh, um, to, uh, to determine that. Um, so, you know, they're doing experiments in animals where they give the animals the virus and then a period of time later, they try to reinfect the animal. And, you know, some of those have shown that you cannot reinfect the animals they are resistant to infection. You know, if the convalescent plasma project were to show a clear benefit in people that receive convalescent plasma, that would speak to the protective effects of antibody. Um, so, uh, and for, for this, let me interrupt that. But for this project, you're looking for COVID nineteen patients who've recovered. They have to be over age eighteen or an adult, eighteen and older. Are there any other criteria? Well, they have to have been. Uh, they have to have had a documented. COVID-19 infection. And so um, PCR proven. Um, it may be that um, people with antibodies via an antibody test could also be eligible uh, um, to donate. But I, I think that's a little bit of a work in progress right now. Uh, they also have to not be sick. They have to be at least two weeks out from their infection. Well, let me uh, give listeners the email would be trials at upstate.edu or the phone number would be 315-464-9869 to get more information about that. So I wanted to ask you how this virus is behaving. Is this coronavirus similar to or different from other coronaviruses? Are there certain traits that you've noticed with this? compared to SARS or MERS or the common cold? Um, well, certainly in terms of, in terms of the common, uh, the, the four coronaviruses that cause, you know, like I said, about 30% of the of, of colds in, in winter. Um, you know, those community acquired coronaviruses can cause severe disease in uh, certain populations. Um, certain populations of the very young or the very old, uh, but it, it does not have the, um, it does not cause the severity of disease in the numbers that, uh, that SARS-CoV-2 certainly causes. Um, you know, it depends on every day the numbers change, uh, you know, it depends on what numbers you're looking at, but even if the mortality rate from infection were 0.5%, um, that still is five times higher than what influenza does. And so influenza, the case fatality rate is assumed to be, it's about 0.1%. And so if this is 0.5%, you can do, you can do the math. And influenza in the United States every year kills about 35 to 40,000 people. So again, you can do the math. That's a lot of, uh, loss of, loss of life. You know, the other thing, so with, MERS-CoV, that fatality rate is about 30 to 40%. So that's much, much higher. With SARS, um, it was about 10%. Um, but again, kind of mixing apples and oranges here in a way because we don't know, you know what the denominator is for all of these, uh, right? For all of these um, diseases. In terms of its transmissibility, it certainly seems, and it's different in different environments, right? Um, I mean, any, any infectious disease, you need a person who is susceptible, you need the pathogen, and then you need some way for that pathogen to uh, come in contact with the person. In some cases, like with, you know, the bacteria that causes Lyme disease, it's a tick, 
uh, and in this case, it's human to human. Um, and so, um, but we do, but the, um, the infectiousness of SARS-CoV-2 seems to be, um, you know, anywhere from, you know, one and a half to two and a half, you know, this reproductive number that we talk about. Reproductive number is the average number of people that an infected person will infect. So if the number is two, it means I'm infected. I can, inf on average, I will infect two people. And on average, each of those two people will infect two people. And you can see how the numbers would increase um, rapidly. Well, for influenza, it's around one. So, so this is the bad scenario of respiratory infection that is um, more transmissible and more deadly than what we see with seasonal, uh, seasonal flu. Um, and I mean, you, you know, we have 300 and what do we have? 320, 330 million people in the United States uh, with the case fatality rate of 0.5%. Um, if, you know, 100 million people are infected, again, you can do the math. That's a lot of, that's a lot of uh, loss of life. Now you said human to human transmission, but in early March, we heard about a zoo tiger that tested positive for COVID-19. And now we've heard about infected house cats. Does that, yeah. does that worry you as a professor uh, of microbiology and infectious disease? Um, it's uh, well, so again, this is not, this is not an uncommon uh, situation. So um, we know that, I mean, 10 to 15,000 years ago, we started to domesticate animals. And when we started to, when humans started to domesticate animals, you know, for labor and, and food, um, that's when diseases started to be passed back and forth between uh, humans and animals. And, you know, we can think of multiple diseases, but even if we just stay within, um, you know, the coronaviruses and stay within the severe coronaviruses, we know that both um, SARS-CoV-1 and MERS-CoV both had animal reservoirs associated with them. And um, the same uh, seems to be true for SARS-CoV-2. Um, you know, it's also, uh, and, you know, those are animals in, in, uh, in the wild. And so let's say the, the average central New Yorker doesn't care too much about that. They care about the house cat or the, you know, their dog. Um, you know, dogs and cats carry diseases that can be transmitted to people. And it's, it's, it's common that, you know, as an infectious disease physician, that we see diseases transmitted from people, from animals to people. Um, and so can, an, can a cat or a dog be infected? Uh, let's just say cat. Um, yes, that's not surprising to me. Do they really pose a risk to, uh, do they pose a risk to people? Um, I don't think that's, I don't think that's really clear yet. I would probably, um, I mean, the CDC has guidance on this, and I would agree with the CDC's guidance that, you know, if the animal is, is ill, that animal should probably be, um, you know, quarantined and, and taken care of like you would a family member who would be ill, and you should uh, try to limit its uh, ability to roam around the house, you should, uh, you know, make sure it's, uh, you know, fed and cleaned and kind of stays in a single environment, uh, you should bring it to the vet. Um, and uh, you should wash your hands. You should not let the kids play with the animal <laughs> while the animal's sick. Uh, you know, just kind of common sense sorts of things. Can you make a prediction for what life will look like in central New York three months from now, six months from now? Jeez. Oh, um, <laughs> well, I think, I do think, I mean, it's a little cliche, but I do think uh, there's going to be a new normal. Right, there have been events in this country's history where the country was not the same after that event. Right, and um, you know we can think of recent events like that. Uh, so you know, transportation was never the same, and security was never the same after 9/11. Right, and people, uh, it was just the new way of we had to, that we had to live our lives. And I, I feel that um, and believe that the same is going to be true for the. Uh, the post, the you know post COVID nineteen, and maybe there'll be a COVID twenty and a COVID twenty one. Um, 
I, I think that we're going to have to, we're going to be establishing a new normal. So what does that, what does that look like? Do I think we're not going to open up society again? No, I, I think we're going to do that. Um, you know, does it mean that people might be wearing masks for a while? Uh, that's possible. Does it mean that there may not be, you know, we might not be jumping right back into 80,000 people in a stadium? That's, you know, that's possible. Um, or, you know, does it mean we're going to have to, people are going to have to be much more vigilant than they were about washing their hands and about covering their cough and sneezed and, and people being, uh, you know, the workplaces being much more strict about people not coming to work if they're sick. Uh, doesn't mean we're always going to have to have, be ready for COVID in the hospital. I mean, I, I think that these are some very practical, that very practical things that people are going to have to, you know, um, think about. Is it going to change how we greet one another? You know, that's possible. That's possible too. Uh, so I, I do think, I do think this is one of those things that we're going to have to live with. This is not going to be a, oh, remember when. Um, I think that this is now, until we get a vaccine solution and until that vaccine um, is mass produced and, and uh, has high, you know, high penetration into the community, uh, I think that we're going to be um, always, always living with uh, uh, COVID in the community. Well, thank you to Dr. Stephen Thomas, the Chief of Infectious Disease at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, what you need to know about isolation and loneliness. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Among the feelings you may have during the pandemic is the feeling of loneliness. After all, we've been maintaining social distancing and isolating in our homes for weeks now. Speaking with me about the issue of loneliness is Brian Amidon. He's a licensed clinical social worker from Inclusive Health Services at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Brian. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So even before the pandemic, there was concern about the levels of loneliness in America. Has this pandemic and the quarantines made that worse? Um, yeah, and I'd like to kind of, you know, preface that. Um, social isolation and loneliness um, have been an unfortunate reality for many people prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, even though it was not highly publicized. In fact, um, this debilitating condition lacked appropriate recognition and awareness in our society. Um, it wasn't until the severity of this pandemic um, that um, and the extreme measures of social distancing that have been implemented in the US and globally, you know, to preserve um, to preserve human lives, that social isolation and loneliness has been thrust into the spotlight. So do you think we have more people now dealing with loneliness than we did before? Um, yeah, most definitely. Let's talk about what's, what's the definition or the difference between loneliness and social isolation? Because I wonder... Is it possible to be socially isolated but not lonely? Of course. Um, you know, um, and so a couple of the differences, you know, social isolation is a state of complete or near complete lack of contact between an individual and society. Um, loneliness often includes um depressed and anxious feelings about a lack of meaningful connection or communication with other beings both in the present and extending into the future um, loneliness often causes people to feel empty 
alone and unwanted. Um, and another interesting, um, you know, social isolation has similar characteristics in both temporary instances and for those with a historical lifelong isolation cycle. Um, and so in both the temporary and chronic or prolonged isolation, the, char the characteristics are similar. Where they differ is the severity of the potential lifelong consequences as a result of chronic and or prolonged social isolation. So what we're going through with the pandemic could have lasting effects. Um, yes, that, that it can, you know, and for, for some people, it very well may have lasting effects that may turn into chronic conditions. Um, for others, maybe not so much. Um, and, you know, so, social isolation alone does not constitute loneliness. Um, some people are, some people are actually, I, I've, some of my patients, um, it's been kind of, um, surprising to me how some of my patients with like social anxiety disorders and or, um, trauma histories, um, now that they have to, you know, they have to social distance, which um, I kind of like to use the, the, the words physical distancing um, instead of social distancing, because, um, you know, social interactions are necessary to instill a sense of comfort and belonging, as well as to help people feel empowered and resilient. So can you get enough socializing through webex webinars or telephone um, or texting can you can you supplement or get what you need from socializing that way if we can't be in person um yeah there there are um you know there are there are a lot of things that um that people can do um to still feel connected, even if it's, um, even if we're not able to come together physically. Well, let's talk about the concrete health risks that are associated with loneliness. Are there manifestations in your body from, if you're suffering from loneliness? Um, yeah, so... Common reactions to um, to social isolation um, include uh, restlessness, agitation, um, sleep disturbance, anxiety, anger, boredom, irritability, loneliness, um, suicidality. Um, is your person's at a much higher risk for, you know, suicidality, um, among others. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Brian Amidon. He's a licensed clinical social worker from Upstate's Inclusive Health Services, and we're talking about uh, loneliness and isolation. So what type of person is most vulnerable to loneliness? Do you see a skew in terms of age or gender, or is there a type that is more vulnerable? Well, um, pre-COVID-19, pre um, I'll just share a few, um, a few statistics with you. Um, so again, like this, this is, from the data and research before this pandemic, um, where 17% of adults age 65 and older um, are more likely to be isolated 
and lonely. Thirty-five uh, percent of um, of adults age forty-five and older report feeling lonely. Um, Twenty-six percent increased risk of early death due to subjective feelings of loneliness. And 46% of women age 75 and older live alone. So there's, you know, that's kind of a, a small snapshot of before this pandemic. Um, so, you know, but social isolation and loneliness can be an issue for individuals of any age. Um, so as far as who is at most risk, um, you know, the, the going off of the, the pre, um, pandemic numbers, those, those are going to be impacted, you know, exponentially. Um, but, um, you know, social, the, the elderly people with chronic diseases, people with limited natural support, um, people with lower income and limited resources, um, those living alone, and those with a prior history of a mental health condition or substance use um, addictions are all more vulnerable to loneliness. So are there warning signs for loneliness that we should be aware of within ourselves? Um. Yeah, some warning signs, you know, that people can look for are, um, you know, having having um, excess fear and worry about your own health and, you know, the health of your loved ones, um, changes in sleeping or eating patterns, difficulty sleeping and or concentrating worsening of chronic health problems, um, worsening of, you know, one's emotional, mental health and well-being, um, and increased, um, increased use of alcohol, tobacco, marijuana, and other substances that, you know, that it's, it, it's, a, it activates the, the, you know, pleasure sensing parts of our brain. Um, and one thing that analogy that I often use with people is, you know, a hug, a hug and a drug. Um, both give you the same, they both activate the same area of the brain. And, oh. um, you know, that's where dopamine and serotonin may come from. Interesting. Well, do you have recommendations for how we can combat loneliness during this time? Um, yeah, um, I think that, you know, it's, it, it's important to make sure that, um, important to make sure that people are taking breaks from watching, reading, or listening to news stories, including the social media sites. Um, you know, hearing about the pandemic continuously back to back can be very upsetting and unsettling. Um, taking care of your body and mind, um, utilizing self-soothing strategies, um, some maybe examples are like uh, deep breathing, guided imagery, meditation, simple stretching, um, exercising, um, trying to eat well-balanced, healthy meals, um, getting plenty of sleep, um, avoiding alcohol or drugs. It's important to use um, other as you identified earlier, non-physical ways to connect with family and friends, like sending a letter, you know? I mean, this in, in today's day and age, that seems like uh, so long ago, you know? 
of actually getting uh, writing out a letter and mailing it. Um, but that um, using the um, you know simple phone calls, um, video calls, um, social media, anything that allows you to connect with others that gives you a sense of meaningful connection. Do you uh, think that the people that are, I mean, cause I know people that are more, they're introverted. Are they having an easier time of this because they're a little more comfortable sort of being on their own quietly reading a book um, than others maybe? Yeah. And, um, and you know, even, you know, it, it's interesting because I, it, it can go, it, it's, it's always, it's individually based, you know, you can't, um, you can't, it's not like a cookie cutter format of like, if somebody's more introverted, then you're not going to get lonely during this, um, during this pandemic. Um, but they are, they're more likely to be able to cope because they don't, they already have routines and things that they do on their own that don't always include interacting with others. Um, you know, other, other really good um, ways to really cope with this, um, you know, exercising in or around the home or your yard, sitting outside, um, or working outside, you know, if people have the means to do that. Um, because as little as 10 minutes uh, time spent outside increases that serotonin and dopamine in the brain that gives us that sense of pleasure and happiness. Um, and I think it's really important for so many of us that had routines that have been disrupted um trying to adopt a new schedule you know having a regular schedule of activities creating structure and purpose um you know that when one's usual routine is disrupt disrupted adopting a new one can be reassuring and um studies show that predictable routines actually lower um, levels of anxiety. Do you think that this period in our history is going to leave a permanent mark on our nation's psyche? Um, I, um, I can't see how it would not. Um, so for, for sure, yeah. Um, you know, our society is in an unprecedented transition unlike anything any of us have ever experienced before. Um, you know, a, even at this point, it's unknown how much longer um, physical distancing will be recommended. Um, I think that for some people, the loneliness will turn into chronic conditions. Um, however, like in the midst of in the midst of the adversity of this pandemic, um, I hope that we will see the true nature of resiliency throughout the majority of our communities and the nation as a whole. Well, thank you so much to licensed clinical social worker, Brian Amadon from Upstate's Inclusive Health Services. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Charlene Langford, writer, organic gardener, rescue dog advocate, lives in Syracuse. She sent us a poem months before we had coronavirus, yet it is a wonderfully apt poem for today's anxious times. Here is The Conditions of Happiness. I am sitting out back under the giant green-leafed sycamore, collecting ideas on a piece of paper, the same way I begin to write another poem. 
the same way I collected ideas for the garden, pick out what seeds to plant, how much dirt to reclaim from pure desert, collecting notions about what works after a good season, what will grow healthy and come back to life again, no matter what else happens in the world around us, unending rain, unbearable heat, about what is meat, what is fertile enough, what returns. A long walk in the sun with the dog each day is an idea I keep, a spontaneous outing with the true purpose. How else to put together a balanced sense for a life if not this way? Collecting seeds, saving trees, watching my leaping dog leap, a walk in the sun, seeds smaller than I am able to hold easily in my hands. Watching how the dog's tail is wagging under the midday sun as if nothing else matters, I try to remember the list the next time trouble comes to me, all the worries and all the aches and pains. I focus my mind on what works, the idea of it, a list of suffering's nemesis, the palm tree at the end of the mind. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. If you missed any of today's show or to hear podcasts on a variety of health topics, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.